So 1 Corinthians 10, um, tonight we're looking at the theme, we have purpose and permission. Um, first off, before we get started, I taught chapel this morning, and it was like an animated chapel, so if my voice just goes out, that's why. So we have purpose and permission. Um, we were talking in the car, Michaela, about you know some of your job stuff, and it reminded me of this, kind of the theme of what we're talking about. Have you ever had a job that you were given to do, like at work, but they did not give you the tools to do the job, or they didn't give you the authority to make the decision, or they didn't give you permission to like actually do what you needed to do? Like you're expected to have a certain outcome, and the workplace like expects that you can do this certain thing, but they don't allow you to actually do it because you're handicapped in some way. Like you're not given permission to do what you're supposed to do. You know what I'm talking about? I think we've all been there in some way or another. And it's like having a purpose, but without permission to fulfill on that. So it would be like, um, well, and I think too, in some ways, maybe I have hindered some of our ministry too, you know, in, in ways saying like that I would need to be there for this or things like that. If that's ever happened, like if you have a purpose that you think that you need to be doing for God and especially through our church, um, but I've been a hindrance to that. I want to give you permission and like, I don't, I don't want to be the barrier between you and serving Jesus. So if that's ever happened, then my apologies. Um, but also I think that's sometimes how we think of our Christian walk. There's something that we know that God wants us to do, but someone else's opinion or their perspective or their rules or their standards or their convictions or something that someone else has gets in the way of us serving God. I think we've all been there in some way too. Um, I think one way that that comes to mind for me is at Rudy Nepo. So the teen camp earlier this year, um, Mimi lifted her hands in praise. And she said that that was the first time really that she felt free to do so. Now, the Bible all throughout commands lift your hands in praise. Um, and I think it's a personal preference. I think for some people, you know, I'm I don't like. I don't know. It's, it's not appealing to me to raise my hand, but at the same time, there are moments where there's just a song that like to God be the glory. And it's just lifting your hands and praise just makes sense. But sometimes I think even when we want to serve God, even when we want to worship God, maybe with hands lifted in praise, you don't feel the liberty to do that. You have the purpose to praise God, but maybe not the permission to do so. In fact, um, I heard of a church recently from one of my family members that they uh, there was a girl who went down to the front and she was kind of new to the church and the Holy Spirit was clearly working in her <laughs> life. God really did have a purpose for her. And that sermon was just geared straight towards where she was. She was a new member in the church and she went forward at the invitation and she knelt down and she prayed with her hands like this. And one of the deacons got up and put her hands down by her side. Now, she had the purpose of getting her life where it needed to be with God, but she was clearly not given permission to act on that. And I think that's an extreme example, and we ought never, ever to be the kind of person who extinguishes the fire of the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. But I think sometimes we also live with this burden that we weren't really meant to bear, and that is the, the burden of permission. We know what our goal is. We know that we're supposed to reach people. We know that we're supposed to lead them to Jesus. But sometimes we forget that we have God's permission to do that. And I think it's frustrating when we get to that point because we feel like we're supposed to do something, but I can't do it. 
and it, it becomes a tension that just eats at us and eats at us and eats at us. And if you ever feel that, tonight's passage is for you because it deals with the topic of you have a purpose, but I'm also giving you permission. And that's why God gives us freedom. The Bible word for that is liberty, which we're going to use tonight. The Bible, God gives us liberty so that we can choose to do things or not to do things wisely so that we can influence more people towards Christ or not. And I'm going to be honest. I was driving to go pick up Skylar, and the heart of this sermon kind of hit me. I have freedom not merely because Jesus paid for me to have it, but I have freedom so I can reach other people with it. That's a different way of looking at it for me. And I think I've seen my Christian liberty before as I have liberty in Christ because he saved me from the law. I have liberty in Christ because I don't have to conform. And that's true. But the real reason that we have liberty in Christ is so that we can reach more people for him. I think when we see that that is our purpose, it realigns maybe our thinking and our ideas about what liberty really looks like. It's not so that I can do what I want to do because I am free in Christ to do so. It's so that I can choose to or not to do what I ultimately am free to do. And I think the ultimate example of this, the, the biggest, largest, literally the largest example in all of history is Jesus on the cross. Remember, they mocked him. If you're really Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, call down 10,000 angels to take you off. And he even answers back, I could do that, but I'm not going to. I think when we think like the ultimate example of using liberty, he had all the freedom in the world to call down heaven's forces right then. Even Satan tried to tempt him. Hey, just jump off this, this high point in the temple and see if the angels will catch you because they will. And Jesus, frankly, had the freedom and the authority to do so, but he chose not to because it wouldn't win more people to his cause. He had a purpose, but he also had permission. And that permission was both to and not to do things. Now, he was free to do both, but he could choose which avenue he took based on the situation and whether it would help or not. For instance, <laughs> um, I think like a modern example is pastors frequently now have adopted a policy that they will never be alone with a woman. And I think that's a wise thing to do. But on the flip side, <coughs> what about Jesus sitting on the, the edge of the well with a woman at the well? I mean, he was alone with her. He talked with her. And I think there's some elements of liberty, not to say that everyone should go and find like questionable circumstances and just jump into them. That's not my point. But it is that sometimes there's uncomfortable ministry that we have to do that might not be the way that you've been taught to do it, might not be the way that you've seen it modeled before. It might not be the way that you even find all of your comfort in. But God gives you liberty so that you can choose to and not to do things and so that you can reach more people with his word. So that's kind of the underlying purpose tonight. And really the idea is we're following Jesus's example, which we're going to see at the very end. So the main idea for you tonight is we have <coughs> liberty. We have liberty. And we can use it to reach people. We have liberty and we can use it to reach people. Now in italics it says, here's how to use your permission 
we're going to use the words liberty, freedom, permission. All of those are kind of interchangeable in this instance. So how to use your permission to achieve your purpose. And there's three ways that you can do this from this passage tonight. Now, I actually, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 10, I want to read you the last verse of chapter 9. Look at it. In chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, But I bring my body, I'm sorry, but I bring and keep my body under subjection, lest when preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, we looked at this last week. He's talking about, I'm going to run my race. I'm going to stay away from sin. I'm going to use my liberty to reach people. I bring my body under subjection. I'm going to be disciplined. But then look at what he says in chapter 10. I would not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now, under the cloud is referring to that cloud that God gave the, he gave the Israelites in their 40-year wandering. You know what I'm talking about? He gave them shade by day and he gave them warmth and light by night with the pillar of fire. So he, they were under the cloud, they passed through the sea, referencing the Red Sea. And so he says, he, he kind of jumps thoughts, it seems like. I'm going to bring my body under subjection, and I also want to talk about history for a minute. And those at first seem like what you would call a non sequitur. That means it does not follow. It doesn't make sense right after it. Verse 2, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, and they were overthrown <coughs> in the wilderness. The idea there is they all had the same blessings of God on their life, but they still suffered consequences for their actions. And that's where we need to learn from the examples that came before. Remember, Paul said, I keep my body under subjection. I'm disciplined because I know that if God could do that to over a million people, he can certainly do that to me too. I think sometimes we negate sin. And, and our first point here is keep from sin, keep from sin so the gospel stays unhindered. Keep from sin so the gospel stays unhindered. I think we see that first and we think, okay, so we have liberty and we're going to try to reach people with it. The best way to reach people is to stay away from sin. And we write that off and we're like, well, I'm familiar with that. I already know that as an obvious point. Um, it's obvious, yes, and that's why we negate listening to it and we forget to think about our sin patterns. And we, we don't think about how my sin affects the eternity of somebody else. And because we just forget about it, we just ignore this truth. That's why it keeps coming up all the time, because sometimes we don't need to be taught things, but we do need to be reminded of them. And this is certainly one of those ways. And God says to keep from sin so that the gospel doesn't become hindered, because if you live in sin, how are you going to tell people about Jesus? You're not. You're not going to follow after his spirit. So then he says in verse six, now these are things. I'm sorry. Now, these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. So he says it flat out. Here's an example. We are not supposed to do what they did. Verse seven, neither be idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Verse eight, neither let us commit sexual immorality as some of them committed. When 23,000 fell in one day, chapter or verse nine, neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. <coughs> Neither murmur, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now all these things happened to them for examples. It says it flat out. There's sin. That's what it looks like. 
But those people were all good people, by and large. They were all people who followed God. They were all people who were under God's blessings. They were provided for by God, which sounds like us. We're people who are under his blessings. God meets our needs. But then watch what he says. Verse 11, now all these things happen to them for examples. They're written as admonition to us. That's advice to us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's an important verse. If you think that you stand, if you think that you're strong in a temptation, then you better pay attention. That way you don't fall. It doesn't say that you will. It just says to pay attention so you don't. Verse 13, here's why it says this. No temptation has taken you except what is common to man. Now, pause there. A lot of times we use this verse as um, <coughs> as almost an encouragement. Hey, listen, I'm right there with you. I've suffered with that before. I've had to deal with that struggle. And that is true. Um, you know, no temptation's new to you. You're not the only one dealing with it. There's other people like you. You can get help, whatever. That That's good. It is good. And it is true. And that is biblical. But the purpose of this verse is not to say that you have other people around you who want to help you. The purpose is actually to say that there's a bunch of other people who can't help you because they've already fallen into the same sin. He says there's a bunch of other people out there who've fallen into sin. And you might not be like them. You might not be like those Israelites who you know worshipped a golden calf. Maybe that's not something that appeals to you, O Corinthians, or O Christian. But there are things that you fall to. And you might not be like those people, but you are like other people. And those other people deal with things. And they struggle with the same struggles that you have. And the point isn't that we all have these friends who are willing to help us, although that's true. And I think our church ought to be a place where sinners can come without feeling repressed and judged and, and harmed. I think that's something that's kept some of us in church. And I think that's a good thing. But on the flip side, everybody struggles with things. So take heed, pay attention, lest you also fall. And then he says this, which is the encouragement of it. God is faithful, and he will not permit you to be tempted above what you can endure, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. You don't have to carry the weight of temptation alone. Now, does that mean that you're always going to beat temptation? No, but it does mean that you could have. Does it mean that you're always going to be perfect? No, but there is one who is. He's willing to help you. And I guarantee you this. When you ask God for help with your sin in the moment of temptation, it's much easier to beat it than if you don't. So take that for what it's worth. But God is faithful even when you're not. And I think that's why he started with that. God is faithful, and he will make a way for you to bear it. So let him help you. That brings us to kind of kind of the first thought there. Abstaining from sin gives you freedom to go where God leads. And I think that's kind of the, the clear application here. If you want to really go lead other people to Jesus, if you want your, your purpose to be to witness to others, and you need the permission it's really hard to get the permission and to do the right thing if you're living in sin. So I think that's a prerequisite. This is something we have to get out of the way first. Now, I think it's, I think it's strange 
if you were to see somebody walking around in prison orange with their hands behind their back, walking around in a normal Walmart scene, but they had no handcuffs on. Wouldn't that be kind of weird? Like we would all think of them like <laughs> you're stuck in the past, buddy. Like you're not in jail anymore. But that's what we do. We've been freed from sin. We no longer are slaves to sin. And yet we walk around with our hands chained, although there are no chains. Remember, Jesus literally, the Bible says, chain the chains of death. There is nothing holding us back from new life in Christ, from a renewed mind, <laughs> from beating the temptation, from freeing ourselves from sin. But yet we walk around sometimes with chains that just don't even exist. The only place that chain exists is in your own mind. So ask him to renew your mind, walk in the spirit, and you won't fulfill the lust thereof of the flesh. So there's your solution. If you want to reach more people, the first step is to make sure that you're not living in sin so that the gospel is not hindered. Now, the next few verses, he kind of goes through um, this next thought. Stay dedicated to serving only the true God. Stay dedicated to serving only is your blank, because that that's one of the most important words in this whole sentence. Only the true God. I think we can all serve God, but not only serve God. Just like a husband can love his wife, but not only love his wife. You understand? There's, there's, a, there's a propensity, the potential to love only the one that you should love. But there is a potential to love things that you should not love. I think we as Christians can serve God, and we can even do it truly and with a good heart, but also serve another God that we don't even know that we're serving, or maybe that we do. And let's define an idol, that kind of false God, that little fake God that we try to serve. Let's define that as something that you can't give up for God. So that's any sort of temptation, that's any sort of addiction, that's any sort of desire, that's any sort of person, that's any opinion, that's any people group, that's any church, that's any belief system, that's anything that God cannot take away from you and you're willing to give him. That is a God because it's more important to you. It is prior in your list of values. To God. It's here. God's here. Let's see what it says. Verse 14. So my beloved flee from idolatry. I speak to wise men. So judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread, which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. He says, as a Christian church, when you take communion, when you do the Lord's Supper, <laughs> don't you all partake of the same stuff? Like it's all the same bread and it's all the same uh, grape juice or wine or whatever. It's all the same stuff. We're all partakers together of it, which means that we're partaking in the same thing. And then look at the next verse. He kind of, he expands the thought. Consider Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What that means is back in the day, they would offer a sacrifice, a physical animal that would die. They would bleed out the animal and then they would burn parts of the body. And then oftentimes they would cut parts of the meat off of the animal before they burned it. And that would be the food for the, Le the Levitical tribes, for the priests. They would be those who would partake of the altar. You see what that means? 
Now, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, he's drawing a contrast, a comparison here. He says, they took food from the altar which was sacrificed. We eat (coughs) the Lord's Supper, which was sacrificed. It's a picture of Jesus who was sacrificed. So we're all taking the same food. We're all partakers of the same Christ, of the same altar. And then verse 19, what am I saying then? That the idol is anything or that which is offered to sacrifice to idols is anything? Um, That's a confusing sentence. I'll clear it up in a minute. Verse 20, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Now that that seems like a pretty good piece of advice right there. Don't (laughs) go um, elbow rubbing with demons. The whole idea here is if you're going to partake in the altar of a pagan idol, then you are participating in the worship of that idol. Just like we also participate in the worship of Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper. I don't want you to be partaking in things that are demon worship. I think this provides some perspective into our lives that we might not have had before. Because we see these false idols as fake gods that don't really exist. We don't bow down to our work schedule. We don't bow down to the kids being in soccer on Sundays. But we do worship it, and we do make sure that they get to their practice on time. We do make sure that we skip out on church when it's inconvenient. We do make sure that we don't give whenever we have a bill. We do make sure that we we do and don't certain things because <coughs> there are idols. They're more important to us than worshiping God the way that he asks us to. But these little things, don't you think that Satan's smart enough not to appeal to Americans with a statue of Baal, but instead maybe the statue of a pigskin on Sundays? Or how about junior soccer league that magically always happens to fall on every single youth event so a little kid can never get to church? Or the grades that parents will push on their kids having, if you don't make all aids, then you're not going to church. Don't you think that Satan's smart enough to turn idols, which used to be physical idols, into a different kind of idol today, but that is just as much satanically influenced? I think he is. I think if we're really going to worship God, if we're really going to go reach people, we got to not be partaking in the sacrifices to those idols. We got to stay away from those demonic influences in our life. Now, do I think that college football is going to damn you to hell? Do I think that you're going to, you know, if you go to an LSU game, then you're, you're just no chance? No. But I do think that there are people who worship LSU football. And when that's a higher priority to them than worshiping God, then. If they would rather forsake the assembling of themselves together, which the Bible commands us not to do, if they would rather do that than go to church, then I think there's an there's an issue there. I think that they found the devil has made a stronghold in their lives that they should have never let him create. But the fact is they have. Now, am I saying that every single time that the church doors are open, you better be there or otherwise God's going to judge you because you have an idol in your life? No. There's a thing called balance and there's a thing called family. There's a thing called time. There's a thing called rest. And Jesus did all of them. But there's also a thing called idol worship. And sometimes we fall into it. And the last little bit of this, he says, verse 21, you cannot 
drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Would you want to make, would you want to intentionally tick God off? Like, no, that's so stupid. That's, I mean, we saw what happened a few thousand years ago when everybody decided that they didn't care what God thinks. He drowned them all. You saw what happened when Egypt said, we won't let you go 10 days in a row. He drowned half of their army. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't that they didn't want God. It was that they did want their idols. And that's what happens with us. It's maybe not that we don't want what God has for us. It's just that we do want other things more. That's how we're going to fall into this trap of not being dedicated to the service of God and only our God. I mean, the kid chasing butterflies with his jersey on background backwards in the middle of the soccer game, like he's not going to be the one scoring the goals, right? That's kind of how we are, though. We show up to the game of Christianity and we show up unprepared and distracted and we play a different game than what Jesus has for us to play. And we wonder why we aren't part of the winning team because we're not playing the right game. We're not doing the things that God has given us to do. We're serving because we're in the game, but we're not serving his way. And I think God can choose to bless us through that despite our inactions but I think that there's a much greater chance of his blessing our intentional effort to worship him. So that's where I think we need to, number two, stay dedicated to serving the true God and only the true God. Number three, do all to glorify God. Do all to glorify God. Look at verse 23. All things are lawful for me. You remember that verse? We already talked about this two chapters ago in chapter eight. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Watch this, though. That was an echo of what we've already talked about, but he's going to add this part to it. Let no one seek his own, but each the other's well-being. That's different, isn't it? Because the first time it was, what's going to help you grow closer to Jesus? Not all things are uh, everything might be lawful for me. Under God's grace, it's it's okay for me to do this, but it's not expedient. That means it's not going to hasten my relationship to God. But this time, it's not the focus is on me. The focus now is on other people. The focus is on the actual mission that I have as a Christian to go into all the world, to preach the, do- the, the gospel, to baptize them, and to disciple them. That's the focus now. And he says, all things might be lawful for you, but they aren't all helpful. All things might be lawful for you. They might not edify. But then he adds this third section to it. Do it for them. It's not for you. It's for them. And that's what changed my perspective as I was thinking through it this afternoon. I was like, my liberty really isn't just for me. It's not so that I can be free in Christ. It's so that I can be free to witness to others, to lead them to Christ. And that changes perspective. Changes the way that I'm thinking through some things. Why am I doing this? Why do I believe this? Why am I willing to stick to my guns on this? Is it so that more people can reach Jesus or is it so that I can be free in my freedom? <coughs> Verse 24. Let no one seek his own, 
but each one the other's well-being. Verse 25. He brings it back to the issue of meat offered to idols. Old faithful. We've been on this for three weeks now. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for the sake of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Okay. Here's what you want to do. If you are going to eat, um, and you good Americans, if you are in the market and you happen to know that they're selling some idol worship meat, then just buy it and don't ask any questions. I don't think that that's our problem today, but that's what their problem was. So let's go on to something more relevant. Verse 27, if any of those who do not believe invite you to a feast, this would be one of those ritual feasts where they do actually perform the sacrifice of the animals. If an unbeliever invites you to the feast and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for the sake of conscience. But if anyone says to you, anyone would maybe be a friend who comes along with you, a Christian friend. If a Christian friend maybe says to you, this was offered in sacrifice to idols, like, how dare you? Why would you eat that? Do not eat it for the sake of him that mentioned it and for the sake of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything's in it. So there you go. If you're going to offend somebody, don't eat the meat. And if you're not going to offend somebody, eat the meat. If it would be more offensive for you, watch. Uh, how about this one? The parent who does have their kids enrolled in soccer every single Sunday and every single Wednesday, every single teen event, instead of shunning them from the church, what if we ate the meat with them and we attended one of the games and we loved them and we show them what Jesus's love looks like and then we build a relationship with them, we get them closer to Jesus. Now, all this time we might be we might be downcast and we might be shunned and we might be um, called names by other people who don't see it that way. But we who know what Christian liberty is about can see that it's getting me closer to get them to Jesus. And if my life is as a missionary, just an ambassador in this world for the time being, then my goal is to lead them to Jesus. And if leading them to Jesus involves getting them to church, how am I going to do that? If I just keep them away from church by, by judging them, by talking bad about them, by talking bad to them, I'm not. But what if I love them? That's an example here of maybe not meat offered to idols, but today's version of it. That's just one example. And my guess is there's other things that your friends would do that you might not be comfortable with or that you know better than. But the fact is, you're not going to reach them. Now, does that mean go out and get drunk with your friends at the bar on Friday night just so that you can lead them to Jesus? No, that's foolish. And I think that's why we started with this is sin and we stay away from sin if we're going to lead people to Jesus. But as long as the Bible doesn't call it sin, as long as you're not falling outside of your uh, of what peace God gives you, of those parameters that the Holy Spirit sets for you, then go lead people to Jesus. Do what you need to do. You have a purpose. It's to lead them. And this gives you permission. And when you do those two things, that's how you do all to the glory of God. Look at the next verse. He says, verse 29, Conscience, I say, is not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? He says, if I'm going to go lead some people to Jesus, then why are there people back behind my back? talking bad about me for doing ministry as Jesus has led me to do it. But then look at verse 31. He wraps up the whole thought. He says, therefore, 
whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, if it's food offered to idols, if it's Capri Suns offered by the moms after the soccer game on Sunday, do it all for the glory of God. Because it's all about Him. And if you're really doing it for His glory, then you're going to want what He wants. And what does He want? More people to partake in fellowship with Him. So go find some people and lead them to Jesus. (laughs) And whatever you do in the process, do it all for the glory of God. He says, give no offense, verse 32, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Just as I try to please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they might be, what? Saved. The whole purpose right here is to lead people to Jesus. Why did Jesus give you liberty? So that they might be saved. Not so that you can do what you want. Not so that you can live your own life. Those are good byproducts. Those are good secondary motivations, but they're not the primary reason. The first reason that you have liberty is so that they might be saved. And then watch this. Remember how I told you the example of the cross was the pinnacle of freedom and the choice not to use liberty so that he can gain some? Chapter 11, verse 1 finishes the paragraph. And he says this, follow me as I follow Christ. If we're really going to follow Jesus, we really are going to go find some people to lead. Now, I can, my job biblically is to lead this church. It is to equip you with knowledge. It is to teach you God's word. And it is, yes, to disciple my own. But the best way that I can disciple the most people is to disciple you. But the, de- the best way that our church can disciple people is for you to go find a few others. And that's always been the plan. Jesus discipled 12. One of them dropped off. And yet, even with that casualty, they still started the greatest movement our world has ever seen. And tonight, 2,000 years later, we're still sitting here reading the words of that movement, finding other people to become a part of it with us in our very own church. That's why I love the gospel. And when we, followed, when we follow Jesus, when we follow each other in our examples, and when we really use our liberty so that we can go reach other people, that's what it does. So I'm asking you, use your liberty this week. You have a purpose. You have permission. Go out and go find somebody. Bonus points if they're from Hammond. Lead them closer to Jesus, whether that's the first step of salvation. I love the open door model that they've been using. The salvation is the first step. Strength. Let's disciple them. Let's get them strong. Let's get them to understand the Bible. And then service. And once they understand kind of what they're doing and why they would be doing it, Let's get them plugged in and let's get them doing the same thing, leading somebody else to salvation who can then go to strength and service and just start multiplying. And if we can each do that, we're going to be well off. Our church is going to grow at the speed that God designed it to. And I think you're going to grow too. Because there's nothing like teaching in order to learn. I know that from experience because every day of my life I do that at the same time. I think you get to do that too. And you can reach people that I can't reach. So I'm asking you to. Go follow Christ.
teach them to do the same. Let's pray, God, you are so good.